You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Amen. Thank you very much for being here this morning. Um, my goodness, uh, it, when we first started, I think there were like 12 of you here. I've never been so glad to see as many people coming in late as I, ha- I was this morning. Um, as Jeff mentioned, for those of you, the 12 that were here, we have a whole lot of people at TBR this weekend in the mountains of North Carolina. Um, and so they'll be back next week. I was thinking, especially in the second service, because not that many were signed up, I was thinking it would feel more like a Bible study, but that is okay, because that's what it's going to feel like today uh, as we get into the, to, to the message. I, I do just want to mention, please, I hope you're excited as we are about June 6th, we're going to be having uh, another outdoor service like we had at Easter that will be at 9.30. It'll be the 9.30 service. There's only one service for the day on that day, and that's when it will be. So um, we are back and forth with masks. Not too many people. I don't see any mask in here this morning, which is more than okay with all the stuff that came out this week. We had seriously thought about putting in the upper lower right-hand corner the CDC the latest recommendation so that, you know, you might have mask on, then take it off, then mask on, because who knows what's coming from the CDC and the White House and the governors. <laughs> well, praise the Lord, we are here together in God's house. Here together in the house. Uh, I hope many of you have been sticking to your plan to read through the Bible this year. If you're on track, whether you began in Genesis and you go all the way through, or if you're reading through the one-year Bible and you know, sort of skipping around, you've already likely navigated some difficult portions of, of, of Scripture. If you were to be able to take one book of the Bible out without feeling guilty, which one would it be? I'm, I'm guessing that First and Second Chronicles would get a lot of votes especially 1 Chronicles, but probably Leviticus would win the day. How many of you have gotten stuck at Leviticus and, you know, you were reading through the Bible and you're smoking? Genesis is awesome. Exodus is okay. And Leviticus, it's like, I just can't do this anymore. Well, today we're going to probably the only time ever. I've been here almost 23 years and hope to be here another 23 Sad for you if I am here another 23. But um, if, you know, as long as I'm here, I doubt I will ever again preach on Leviticus. So if this is your very first time, I apologize. Um, But that's what I should have said after the first service because I know we had a lot of first timers then and not sure about today. Wouldn't you know, though, that if we took out Leviticus, we would be living at, leaving out one of the most crucial components of God's redemptive plan. There were all these pictures in the Old Testament that were filled in in the second. It's like a puzzle that was being put together, and you're like, I don't have any idea what this picture is going to be when it's done. But by the, by the New Testament... If all you had was the New Testament pieces, you still would hardly know what the picture is about. It takes the whole thing 
to see everything that God wanted us to see. The title of today's message is The High Cost of Our Sin and the Brilliance of God's Redemptive Plan. The text comes from Leviticus 16 and a portion of Hebrews 9. There will be a lot of scripture read today. Think of this as, as somewhat as a guide to, to, to going back and working through Hebrews. Or next year when you come to it. To be able to help you understand the book a little better. A template if you will. If you're in a home group this week. This text is probably going to make a lot more sense to you. After you work through the questions. Later this week I'm going to be putting on faith like. Not only the home group questions, but also the leaders' notes that go out to help them prepare for the questions that we work through after the sermon has been preached in the week. Before we begin reading in Leviticus 16, and, and by the way, let me say this though. If you are not on Faith Life, this would be a good time to jump on, or if you would like to receive those Leader's notes, but you're not quite ready to join our online church community uh, through Faith Life, then just let me know and I'll be glad to send those notes to you. And uh, I, I promise you it will help fill in some blanks, especially if you're willing to just keep working through this. So before we begin reading in Leviticus 16, I want to give you a hint at what we've been missing by listening to what John Kleinig had to say in his introduction to the commentary that he wrote on the book of Leviticus. Quote, Leviticus is divine speech more obviously than any other book in the Bible. For almost every section begins, the Lord spoke with Moses. In the first verse of Leviticus, there is a shift in God speaking to Moses from the top of Mount Sinai to the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, thus establishing the mode of his presence with the Israelites. You think, think about the significance. God used to speak with Moses up on Mount Sinai. Now he's speaking in the tabernacle, which it's kind of like the church, not, not like the church, but kind of like the church. He speaks to his people in his house where he, his presence dwells. As God speaks, he gives his gospel to Moses and the Israelites. By his word, he establishes the tabernacle as the place where he dwells with his people and blesses them. Just as his son, the word, would later become flesh and so tabernacle among us. You remember this from last week, the, the um, panel and Dr. Calvert was saying, in John 1.14, it says, The word became flesh, and the flesh dwelt with us. That word dwelt could literally be translated tabernacled. So when the tabernacle was on the earth, and then the temple was on the earth, there were three things that were going on. One, you found the presence of God there. Two, you worshipped God there. And three, it was a place of sacrifice. So, the, the Son, the Word, would later become flesh and tabernacle among us, full of grace and truth. So much about those two words that I won't even begin to take time that are in the Old Testament pointing to 
the day when Jesus, full of grace and truth, would show us God. He would be among us. By God's provision of substitutionary atonement through the blood of the Lamb for burnt offering in Leviticus, He grants forgiveness of sins, cleansing from impurity, and access to Himself and His grace. By His provision of holy food from the altar, He gives His people holy communion with Himself and each other. <clears throat> Thus, the book of Leviticus foreshadows the gospel of Jesus and proclaims it provisionally. Or, for the time, this is the plan of God. But it's pointing to something. We're going to see more later on. Close quote. So I want to begin by pointing out a few things about our reading today. Just to give you this to have in your mind as we read through. And then we'll begin in Leviticus 16.1 and read all the way through the chapter. Typically, we stand for the reading of Scripture, but it's way too long. And I'll, I'll say a thing a, a, along the way, a thing or two along the way to help prepare uh, or help our understanding of what was going on and how this was pointing to Jesus. Then we'll read from Hebrews 9 as we move toward the Lord's table. First, Leviticus 16 introduces the annual observance of the Day of Atonement, occasioned by the sin of Nadab and Abihu, Abihu that led to their death. Just testing your Bible knowledge, Nadab and Abihu were sons of Aaron. Sons of Aaron. And you knew it, you just were scared to speak up, in case you'd be, you didn't want to hear me say, ah, thank you for playing. Um, but Aaron... Sons, Nadab and Abihu. The thing that's serious about this, I was talking with someone between the services. We were thinking about it. It, it shows the holiness of God. Aaron barely had time to grieve. Nadab and Abihu went into the tabernacle and they had some incense that God had not required. And it was like, oh, this is a really cool way for us to worship the Lord. And God struck them dead with fire. And Aaron barely had time to grieve before God just started giving instructions to, go, to move forward. It's showing us the importance of God, or the, the, the gravity of, of, of their sin, which we would have thought was a really good thing. It was well-intentioned. But God said it's got to be done a precise way. Now, all of that is pointing to Jesus. Thank God it's not like that in this day and age. But... We understand the purpose of it. Two, Leviticus is made up of 37 speeches. The Lord spoke to Moses or the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. And Leviticus 16 verses 2 to 34 is the 19th. The exact middle speech. Leviticus is the middle book in the Pentateuch. Now, you may or may not recall this, but I've talked several times Especially when we were in the book of Hebrews, we, looked, we saw this, where the scripture has, has a structure called chiasm. And it's like A, B, C, D. C strophe, those two line up, B strophe, A strophe. So you've got this gradual pointing to something and then moving back. And, and these are very similar in what they say. And almost always, whether Old Testament or New Testament, 
where there's a chiasm in Scripture, Jesus is at the point. He's right at the point. Everything is, is about him. That's what's happening in Leviticus 16, as we're going to see. Number four, in Leviticus 16, we find seven mentions of the holy place and seven mentions of the mercy seat. And we're just getting started with the sevens. Seven is an important number. It's why. It, look, I recognize the world doesn't know God, and we shouldn't expect them to honor God any more than we would expect a blind person to be able to move about freely without knowing a place where he or she is. But when the lottery comes out with the importance of seven, that just really bothers me. Because I think we all know the importance of seven in Scripture. This is a, 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 an indication of God's perfection, His holiness. So we're just getting started with the sevens. And then number five, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It happens in the fall, September in Israel, because their calendar is not the same as ours. But the Day of Atonement became so important, it was known simply as the day. This is the most solemn ceremony that the Israelites have every year. It, it's, it became that a long time ago. Still is. Now, Passover, although a lamb is slain, and the door, I mean, the blood was put on the door in the post it was a happy time. It was a time of celebration, of free being freed. But the day of atonement was serious and somber because it was the day people's sins were dealt with. So, now we'll jump into Leviticus 16.1. Thank you for fixing that, Kyle. Thank you very much. In between, he fixed my mistake on that. The Lord spoke to Moses... After the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, see there are two speeches right there. Verse 1 is number 18. Verse 2 begins number 19, the exact middle speech. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place Inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. Now, you remember the structure of the tabernacle? There's this big general area known as the holy place. And then there's a curtain between. There are altars out here where uh, animals are, are, are slain uh, and altars. And then there's some furniture. And then there's a curtain. And behind this curtain is... A very small room. It's called the most holy place. It's called the holy place sometimes in this text. But it becomes known as the holy of holies or most holy place. And there is the ark of the covenant. And the mercy seat is on top of the ark of the covenant. God's presence is rep rec uh, represented there. The, the, the flower that budded. Aaron's flower that budded. The ten commandments. And some manna. They're all in there. But on top of this mercy seat, that represents, on top of the altar, the mercy seat represents the very presence of God. So Aaron is not to come whenever he wants to, to in, into the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat that is on the Ark, so that he may not die. 
For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come, and this would be his descendants, the high priest, one time a year, into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy Garments. These are rather plain linen garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Guess how many times In this text, we're told that Aaron is to make atonement for himself. Seven. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots. Could be, it's similar to what we would be throwing dice. It's not exactly maybe like that, but there are different kinds of descriptions of what this might have been. But it, it, it's the same sort of thought. He cast lots uh, over the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for Azazel. Now, what is Azazel? If you've got a King James Version, your Bible says the scapegoat. The reason for this is the Hebrew words, the letters are very similar for this word that we transliterate, Azazel, or scapegoat, it's translated in a lot of places. So it's very similar. I know this is kind of complex here, but follow this. Some people think that Azazel is is the goat itself. Some people think it's a place. Some people think it is um, actually a demon. And so one goat is sacrificed for um, the Lord and the other is sent away to to a demon. You're going to see that if you study this very much. You're going to see it a lot. I don't think it is. I don't think that's it at all. It's really literally translated the goat that is sent away. So it's the scapegoat is what we think of. You've heard that term probably a lot in your life, especially if you're older. I don't know that we hear it too much. But a scapegoat is what? He's one that takes the blame for somebody else, right? And oftentimes, a scapegoat is sent out of the company, away from the group. It's like he's bearing the sins. We don't want to have to think about this anymore. That's what's happening here. And Aaron... Verse 9, shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it. That it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself. And for his house, he shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord. And two handfuls handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring it 
inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he may not die. So here's what's going on here. Some people think that this fire and smoke that is being created is to be so thick that when Aaron walks in, he really can't see the mercy seat. Because what does the mercy seat represents? represent? The presence of God. And so what happened to people who saw God in the Old Testament? They died. They all understood that. Or when Moses said, let me see your presence. Moses was closer to God than anybody until Jesus came along has ever been. God spoke directly to Moses. But Moses was not allowed to look on him because he was too holy. And Moses, as good a man as he was, was sinful. So maybe that's going on. Verse 14. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat and on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger. How many times? Seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering. That is for the people. And bring its blood inside the veil. And do it with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull. Sprinkling it over the mercy seat. And in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. Because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And because of their transgressions. All their sins. And so he shall do. For the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. The presence of God dwelling in the midst of a sinful people. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place. Until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. This is unusual. Aaron usually is instructed to put one hand on the goat, maybe because he would sacrifice the other. I'm not sure. I, I was so busy in Leviticus 16 that I, I, I can't tell you exactly why one. But on this, it's like he's putting both hands on the goat to signify all of the sins of the people are being transferred to this animal. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. 
The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to this remote area, to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness, never to return again. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments, his other garments, which are a lot more elaborate. And come out and offer his burnt offerings and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself. And for the people. And the fat of the sin offering. My dad used to say the Lord requires the fat to be burned up. Because he's keeping that for himself. Because it's the best. The fat's the best part of the meat. You know, The fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel. Shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterwards he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. The skin, their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire away outside the camp. And we're not going to read this in Hebrews 9, but in Hebrews 13, it's in the, it's, it's in the home group questions. Um, we're told... As we identify with Jesus' shame, the cross, the shame of his cross, we're to go outside the camp because that's where he is. We know that he was crucified outside the city walls. All of this was a picture being painted, and it was all filled in perfectly with Jesus' death and resurrection. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, again, that's September for, for them, September, October, along through there, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work. Now, this phrase, afflict yourselves, it's not like some people say we should beat ourselves, but the point is that we should mourn over our sins. We should not take this lightly. This is a serious thing. Our sin, we're called to afflict ourselves and shall do no work. It's implied in the New Testament. After the native or the, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. One rule, one law for everybody. If you're in within the covenant people of God, we all function this way. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sin. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest. The Jews called it a Sabbath of Sabbaths. A Sabbath of solemn rest to you. And you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest, we're almost done. The priest who is anointed and consecrated... As priest in his father's place. In other words, Aaron's the high priest. His son will be the high priest and will keep on going down. The, that one who is anointed as father's priest shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement 
for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute to you forever. That atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Wow. That is a lot of information. It's complicated if you don't know the customs, if you don't know the details surrounding it. But having set the stage, I want to make three points of gospel application from Leviticus 16. Beginning with this. Gospel truth means nothing until there is an acceptance of one's sinfulness before a holy God. I thought about this in the first service, didn't actually say it, but I should say it. That if you grew up in a Christian family, if you've grown up in a Christian family, you may never remember a time when you didn't believe in Jesus. I'm not saying you have to have a point in time where you can say, this is exactly when I accepted Christ. It's helpful if you have it, but it's not necessary. That's really not the New Testament Teaching, it's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But belief is always accompanied by repentance. An acknowledgement of who we are apart from Christ. You are right to think that people will be offended if believers insist on confession of sin before trust in Jesus is meaningful. You are wrong if you think that we should therefore leave this part of the equation out of our evangelism efforts. We have to be willing to tell people that sin is a blight on us all. Now, of course, be careful how you do this. You don't, don't walk around just putting your finger in people's faces. We're all in the same boat together. I think that's part of the significance of Aaron being told, consecrate or make atonement for yourself. Seven times he will make atonement for himself. So never be mean-spirited or callous in your commitment to, to tell people about the importance of recognizing sin. But find a way to help others understand their need of a Savior. Look, if I'm in the pool and uh, you jump in the pool to rescue me when I'm out there doing the backstroke. I might be a little frustrated with, hey, I got to save you. I got to pull you out of this pool. I'm like, what are you talking about? But if I'm going down for the third time and this is all that I can see, I'm going to be mighty happy to see you when you come in there to rescue me. People need to understand their need for Christ in order to understand the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice. When we share Christ, just like Aaron identified with the people, we need to identify with them as well. Look, we're all sinners. But the difference between Aaron and Jesus, our great high priest, is that Jesus had no need to make atonement for his sins. He was perfect. He was spotless. That's why he did it once. It's a once and for all sacrifice this made Jesus worthy to die in our place. Aaron had to make atonement for himself as well as others. Jesus only made atonement for us. He was perfect. When you're sharing the gospel with someone who's just unable to see his or her need 
for Jesus, perhaps a good question would be, what do you do with your guilt? We all have it, right? We all have guilt. So what do you do with it? It's no good to try to justify ourselves by comparing ourselves to others because in the end, and I, I say it like this a lot of times. People who claim to be atheists, I'm saying like, just like, wouldn't you agree that if God exists, we can't know him unless he reveals himself to us. And if he exists, he's completely other than us. And what are we going to do? Just, just in, imagine in your moment. You have to stand before a holy God and you've spent your life thinking you're good enough because you... You're better than Jay and Candace, for goodness sakes, you know. You're better than the Ten Brinks. You're better, you know, we're, we're comparing ourselves against one another. You're better than the tallies. That's not going to mean anything in heaven. When we stand before a holy God, our guilt needs to have already been dealt with. It can only do that with Jesus. That's the good news. Jesus paid it all. He takes care of our guilt. Second, worshiping God on our own terms is ultimately unacceptable worship. Just like Nadab and Abihu. So I, I think this would be, really be cool. God is just as holy now as he was in the days of Moses. And the consequences for failing to worship him as he requires is eternal life. I mean, eternal death. And so, you know, when you say, look, you get to God your way, I'll get to God mine. If he's prescribed a way that we come to him, and that is through Jesus, then that's the only way we can come to him. When the culture loudly proclaims that all of society's ills are largely the result of church's influence on American culture. And you have to understand where they're coming from. You surely agree with that at some level that we have had responsibility. But look, do not forget that the truth of the gospel comes through the church. And an attack on the church quickly becomes an attack on the truth of the gospel. Don't you see what Satan's doing? The truth comes from Scripture, yes, but the New Testament teaches that truth is disseminated by the church and the gospel proclaims that no one can be good enough to enter God's presence without proper sacrifice. But many reject this truth even uh, because they think they can earn their salvation even if they deny that God exists. But this message comes through the church. And if you think, look, we'd just all be better off without organized religion... Watch how quickly the gospel leaves any land where the churches go down. Why? Because church is plan A. There is no plan B. We, we think about institutionalized religion being a problem. If we, can, if we can take our American glasses off long enough to understand the way the New Testament talks about the church and put on gospel glasses, we'll see where the church stands in God's plan. In Matthew 18, it is not a stretch to understand Jesus as saying that to be apart from the church is to be apart from Christ. Now, that's a serious and bold statement. Think about it. 
I'm not sure how that works in a city or a community where several gospel preaching churches exist. And you know, you can be in one, you can be in another, and you're going to hear the gospel. It's all going to be okay. I understand that. But I do know that the church is God's design. Commit yourself to a local church that preaches the gospel and exalts Jesus as the only hope of heaven. Whether that's grace, whether that's somewhere else. I, most of you are at grace and I'm so glad. And whatever issues we've got, let's work through them. Let's learn together. Let's, let's grow together. And be the place where the gospel Goes out loud and clear. Third and last of these applications. God, the final sacrifice to which Leviticus 16 pointed was made by Jesus. Our great high priest. God's plan is eternal. The Old Testament was pointing to Jesus all along. The religious leaders of Jesus' day failed to recognize him as the lamb who would be slain for the sins of the people. Or as the scapegoat bearing the sins of the people outside the camp. How exquisite is the love of a holy God that requires things to be done exactly as he did in the book of Leviticus. And yet, redeems sinful people by sending and sacrificing His Son in our place. God's plan was always Jesus. The author of Hebrews helps us to make sense of the middle speech in Leviticus. Look, several years ago when we went through Hebrews, I, I, I made this statement because it dawned on me as I was preparing for this study. That if you understand the book of Hebrews, you know how the Bible works. Even the high priest, Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi, from which Aaron came and all the high priests passed down. But he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And you can't just go back to the Old Testament and not realize it that order of Melchizedek, the high priest after the order of Melchizedek was just weird. I'm sure the Jews must have thought, what is this about anyway? When he shows up in Psalm 110, he's in Genesis 15, 18, maybe 13. He, he's in Genesis, Abraham meets him, but Jesus is a, is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. This plan is amazing. The author of Hebrews helps us make sense of the middle speech in Leviticus, the middle book of the Pentateuch, as he sees Jesus in the sacrificial system. Hebrews 9, verse 6. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties into the holy place. But into the second, the holy of holies, the most holy place, only the high priest goes, and he, but once a year, as prescribed in Leviticus 16, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional <coughs> sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. 
when the writer of Hebrews wrote his letter, his sermon, the temple was still standing. God revealed himself to Moses on the mountain, then in the tabernacle to the people, then in the temple to the people. The temple is still standing by this point. And he said, according in middle of verse 9, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal only with food and drink and various washings, all of these rituals and regulations that Aaron had to go through. It's like, that's not going to cleanse our conscience. That's why Jesus had to come, but this is setting it all up. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not being made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. What he's talking about here is that Christ went into the heavenly places, and just like there was a mercy seat in the tabernacle and then in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, Christ went right into the very presence of God and offered his blood on our behalf. For the, if the blood of bulls, of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Amen. I promise you, that's probably going to be the only time I ever preach from Leviticus. But I hope it whets your appetite. And I hope the next time you go through Leviticus, even if you say, as someone said between services today, when you're reading Leviticus, it's like, uh, didn't I just read that two, three verses ago? There's all of this incredible structure, but it's all pointing to Jesus. As we come to the Lord's table, let's recall John Kleinig's words from the introduction to his commentary on Leviticus. By his provision of holy food from the altar, he gives him, his people holy communion with himself, with each other. So that's what's happening as we come to the Lord's table. And by the way, we're also working on how we can do this that's back more in a normal way in the very near future, we'll be going back to safely partaking of communion, probably by coming forward and um, trying to keep it safe, but by doing this as we have done in the past, rather than using these little safety cups, which are have been really quite a blessing during this time. If you have not done this before, you might want to be working to get that top little Strip taken off so that you can get to the bread or the wafer that is here. When we come to the Lord's table, what do we remember? We remember Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. We have, yes, we have some passing around if you, if you fail to get one on 
on the way in. Thank you, Matt and Jeff, for doing that. Um, we're remembering Christ's sacrifice for us. We should examine our hearts as 1 Corinthians tells us to do. And, and confess any sin that we've got coming into this day. But don't let the sin that you committed for the 1,345th time this past week. And you prayed for God to forgive you and you knew you were going to do it again. Don't let that stop you. That's what this is all about. It's forgiveness. The arrogance that the people came with in 1 Corinthians was about making a mockery of the body of Christ by getting drunk on wine and then also making a mockery of this body of Christ by having a prosperity gospel kind of an attitude that if you're wealthy, God has blessed you, but if you're poor, God has withheld his blessing from you. And it would be sinful for those of us who are wealthy to give the poor people communion because if God's judging you, we surely need to judge. God judge that sin. You, we can't. All walls are broken down in Christ. We are all one people. We have called to be one. We've been called to be one people. So if you, if there's sin that you're hanging on to, confess it this morning. If there's sin that just haunts you and haunts you, and you wish so badly you could Get rid of it. Pray for the Lord to give you strength. Even in this meal that we share together. To say no to sin and yes to him in the days ahead. But know that it's his sacrifice that this brings the forgiveness of our sins. So let's take a moment. If you would, if, you, if there's anything in your heart to confess, do that. And then I will pray a prayer of confession on behalf of all of us. Father, we confess in the same way that you commanded the people to afflict themselves, not bodily, doing bodily harm. But Lord, to come and to say, oh God, sorry, I'm sorry for the sins that I have committed since the last time I was at this table. Please forgive me according to Jesus' sacrifice. Father, we confess that we have sinned and thought, deed, and word, we confess that we have sinned by leaving undone things that ought to have been done. We confess our sin before you. And even as we prepare to partake of the bread and the juice that remind us of the body and the blood of Christ, we participate with one another in close communion with you, just according to your design. And so we thank you for the body and blood that were given and shed on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
in the same way. He also took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus raised the glass. He was essentially saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is going to be a once and for all sacrifice. It's not going to have to be yearly. It's not going to have to be weekly and monthly. This is it. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for your marvelous plan of redemption. Even though you are a God who is so holy that these restrictions were required before any priest could offer the blood of an animal for sacrifice for our sins. You loved us enough that you sent Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on our behalf. And Lord, may we live in the truth and the work of Christ. Make us more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. And verse 25. Four or six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are looking for him to return. Would you stand together? Let's sing as Jeff is coming to share the benediction. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.